Good is good, isn't it? We, uh, we, we like it when, when things are good. We talk about that a lot. Uh, we say, you know, that was a, that was a good movie. That, uh, you, you're, you're a good sport. He's a good dancer. She's a good singer. We're having good weather, not. <laughs> oh, how is a good meal? Such a good dog. We love to rate and evaluate. I mean, sometimes things are just, it's just great, and sometimes it's good. But that's not what we mean when we're talking about this series. God is good. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness in God. When we say God is evil, we're saying, God, when we say God is good, we're saying there's no evil in God. There's no sin in God. All the way through and through, God is good. Now, it wasn't like that everywhere. The other ancient deities uh, at the time, you know, Zeus, he was the king of the Greek pantheon, right? Uh, he was known for his erotic escapades. The Egyptian goddess Isis, she created a cobra, and she kind of got it so it would sting the sun god Ray and weakened him, and then and that's how she tricked him into giving her his secret name so she could get his power. In Babylon, uh, Apsu and Tiamat give birth to a generation of gods, and then the kids decided they were going to take over. And so they start doing battle, and, and Apsu fights them, and he ends up being killed in the process. And so mom, Tiamat, turns into a dragon. And then another god named Marduk comes and, and kills her and slices her in half so that her body becomes heaven and earth. These gods were not good. That's why, uh, for example, Psalm 86 says, among the gods... There is none like you, Lord. Israel's God is good. And throughout this series, we've been reciting a theme verse. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you're starting to, I think, probably learn it by heart, I'm hoping. Psalm 103, verse 8. Here it is. Let's all say it together. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, two weeks ago in this series, we looked at uh, the compassion of the Lord. Last Sunday, we looked at the unfailing love of the Lord. And by the way, you can watch those messages if you missed them or want to see them again on our website or on our Faith Westwood app. Uh, and now, also recently, we've added where you can listen to it uh, as a podcast. So you can do that. Uh, anyway, today we're going to talk about and get to know the justice of God. Now, there's an allusion to the justice of God in this verse on the screen, Psalm 103.8, where it says, God is slow to anger. Now, if you and I were writing that verse, we'd probably say it differently. We'd probably say, the Lord never gets angry, because that's what most of us want to believe. But here it says that God is slow to anger. God's, God's not in a rush to judge, but he will judge. God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. And you know, as I was thinking about that, I, I realized, you know, would I want God to be any other way? I mean, I don't, think, I don't think you would. Here's my look at it. 
A God who never gets angry is not a good God. What do you think about that? Let's say it all together, shall we? A God who never gets angry is not a good God. Because think about it. What, what would God be doing? He would say, oh, I'm looking down here at the, all the people on earth, and they can just, uh, oh, those silly humans killing each other and shooting each other. You know, the kids will be kids. That's not the kind of God that we believe in. That's not the kind of God that you would, that you would want. The story of the Bible is that God is redeeming the world. Why? Because it needs to be fixed. We're in a lot of trouble. And God loves justice. Let's say that together, shall we? God loves justice. Let's say it again. God loves justice. God wants a world where the weak no longer uh, are victims of the strong. God wants a world where everyone's treated fairly. God wants a world where those who have wealth and power aren't taken advantage of those who don't. And the world that God wants is called the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to ask you to please open your Bible to Psalm 7. If you brought your own Bible, that's awesome. If you didn't, there are Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. Share if you need to. Uh, you'll find it on page, uh, starting on page 538 in the, in the pew Bible. And I'm going to ask you, especially today, keep the Bible open, okay, because we're going to have times where we come back to it, uh, and there'll be kind of breaks in the middle, but, but keep it open. Uh, and also, my, my pledge, my personal pledge this week is that I'm going to do my best to read Psalm 7 out loud every day this week. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you all to do the same, just as your own personal commitment to grow into, the, into this psalm and to what it says. So how many of you think you're going to try that? Do your best. Do your best, a lot of you, okay. Now, uh, Psalm 7 is a prayer for deliverance. And actually, I think that's the most common type of psalm in the Bible. Uh, if you look, did you look at above verse 1, um, where it says, and there might be some in the pew rack underneath you guys there. Um, there you go. And uh, anyway, above verse 1, um, it says a Shagayon. Do you know what a Shagayon is? What, what's a Shagayon? Anybody know? I always say, well, how should I know? <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, I stepped into that one. Anyway, we don't know what it means. It, it could be a type of song or tune or something like that. Uh, and then it says that David sang this song to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Well, who's Cush? Well, we don't know that either. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but we do know that the first king of Israel, Saul, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. So it's reasonable to assume that he was perhaps a friend of King Saul, an ally of his. And when you read the book of 1 Samuel, you find out that Saul was extremely jealous of young David, wanted to kill him. And he, Saul sent out his army to try to track David down. Maybe Saul, excuse me, maybe Cush was one of Saul's officers. Or maybe Cush was a prosecutor bringing charges against David. Anyway, 
David knows he's innocent. Uh, he knows that he, he hasn't done whatever it is they're charging him with and accusing him of. So, so David is forced to flee. He becomes a fugitive. He and his friends are all hiding out in caves. So with that kind of context, let's uh, read verses 1 and 2 all together, shall we? Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. David calls on the Lord because he believes in the justice of God. And then starting in verse 3, David presents his defense before the Lord. Follow along with me there. Lord my God, if I have done this, and, and if there's guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. He's saying, if I'm guilty of the crime, then, I, hey, Lord, I'm ready to pay the price, but, but I didn't do it. And so David calls on God to intervene in verse 6. He says, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree what? Justice. You know, whatever, whatever judicial system we have, whatever justice system we have, if it's run by people who are biased, who have agendas, who are selfish or tired or ignorant, it's going to be a deeply flawed system. And David, he's sort of in the middle of that. He's, you know, he's not getting any justice, so he, he just keeps calling on God. I want to invite uh, a guest to come up there. Derek, you want to come up and join us and Um, and we'll have to make sure your mic gets turned on there. Okay. Is it good? All right, very good. And uh, anyway, I've just get met Derek today, and uh, you are from Cincinnati. Yes, indeed. All right, man. Because <laughs> we are both Cincinnati Reds fans. I love the Reds. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway... Um, but you have had quite a story in your life, and I'm, I'm eager for all of you to, uh, to hear that. But anyway, um, in 1985, you were on trial. Yes, sir. Um, now, now, tell us about the evidence that was brought against you, because there was a crime. Someone was murdered, uh, and there were eyewitnesses. Tell us about the evidence against you and, and everything. Well, well um, first of all, my name is Derek Wayne Jameson. Um, I'm the 119th death row survivor in the United States. And in my case, I got one of the worst cases in American history. Yeah. Um, in my case, the prosecutor and the homicide detective, they withheld 35 pieces of evidence that pointed to everybody but me. Mm. And in October, uh, October the 25th of 1985, 
I was sentenced to die for a crime that I had nothing to do with, and my lawyers, I had, I call them, they were public defenders, but I call them public pretenders, because they didn't know, they didn't have a clue. And you know, by me having a capital case, they brought out the big guns, the best prosecutors in my state, you yeah. know? And they sentenced me to die for something I didn't do, and it, it, I knew it was gonna destroy my family, you know, at the time, you know, my mom was alive, my father was alive. How old were you? I was, I was 23 years old when I was sentenced to death. Yeah. In the state of Ohio. So, so there was all, there was a lot of evidence that could have exonerated you that was withheld in the trial, is that yes, right? Yes, sir, yes, sir. And um, yeah. my, my attorneys, uh, I had lost all my pills in the state court and God sent me some angels. Um, he sent me a lawyer from a law firm and his name was John Gilligan and his team of lawyers. And it was like you had done something to them when they found out how they had really mistreated me and abused the laws. So that's well, how you were exonerated. Then, yes, is that sir. Right? Yeah, and then um, the victim family members saw the perpetrators that did this, well, and they, they told the police officers that y'all got the wrong guy. You know, a lot of people. It was in the daytime when this crime occurred, and a lot of people saw what happened, and they yeah. told the police officers y'all got the wrong guy. But they was being overzealous, and they wanted to prosecute. Wow. And you see what happened. You know, it was a, so. So how long were you on death row? Well, I got sentenced to die October the 25th of 1985. And 20 years later, on the same day, October the 25th of 2005, I walked off of death row a free man. Wow. So my worst day in my life became the best day of my life. October 25th. October the 25th. Yeah. Yes, sir. So you, you were, you were, from the time you were sentenced to the time you were released was exactly 20 years to the day. Um, yeah. Were you angry? No, because the reason people always ask me, why aren't you angry by what happened to you? Even priests and nuns ask me, yeah. why aren't you angry? I ain't angry because them guards was angry that took my 53 friends out of their cell and executed them. So yeah. why would I want to act like them, you know? Um, yeah. In my state, uh, since 1999, we had 53 executions, mm. you know, human beings. And I watched these young men. I grew up with them basically because most of them was like 18 and 19 and looked at way younger. You know, I watched all these young men grow up to be healthy young men yeah. and taken out of their cell and executed. And now we're finding out that like two or three of them could have been innocent, you know, oh. so we wow. making big mistakes because I'm the 119th death row exoneree in the country. Yeah. It's 156 people in the United States that this didn't happen to. That's 156 people that's been kidnapped and almost murdered for something they didn't do. So how close did you come to being executed? Well, one Derek? time, one time I came hours from being executed. By being on death row for two decades, I had six days of execution. Six days? Yeah, I had six execution days, and the governor gave me a stay. 
you know. So in some of those, you were probably just hours away, right? Yes, it was. It was like one time we was on lockdown, so they couldn't get the information to me that I had to stay. And me and all my friends on death row and the media and people out all, yeah. all around the state, they was, you know, they was waiting to see if it was going to be an execution that day. But so you had your last meal more than once. Well, they, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't accept no last meal. I, my lawyers told me, I, they came to my door and asked me, where did I want my body sent? Yeah. And my mom was still alive at the time. Yeah. But the worst day in my life on death row, uh, it was around Christmas time in 1997. Mm -hmm. I was sitting on my bed on death row, listening to uh, gospel music and Christian, I mean, um, Christmas music, and all yeah. these cars arrived at my cell. And I looked with in tears, and they told me, <laughs> they told me that my mom had passed away that oh. morning. And I was waiting for my mom to visit me. So, this is destroyed sadly, you know. Yeah. Even the victims and the people, the death penalty is just pure evil, you know. Yeah. Man. So, uh -huh. so th this, what happened to you just rippled out to so many people. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Um, what, was it, what was it like on that day, October 25th, 2005, when, when you walked out? What was that like? Oh, man. It was, uh, I always tell people, it, it felt like that day before Christmas. You remember when you was a little kid? Yeah. And, you couldn't go to sleep because, you know, you got your mom that bought you all these nice toys and beautiful bikes and stuff. And you had that adrenaline rush. You can't go to sleep. But yeah. if I could bottle it up and sell it, that feeling, I'd be a billionaire, you know, because yeah. it was just an amazing feeling. But my biggest supporters were there. My mom, my dad. I lost two of my eyes and knees, and these were my biggest supporters, you know. Yeah. It just destroyed my family. I knew it from the day I was sent to die, what this was going to do, the kind of impact this was going to have on my family and friends, you know. Um, and like you said, you, you've, been, you've been exonerated of the crime now. Yes, sir. And you're one of 156 people. I'm the 119th person to be exonerated in the United States, and it's 156 above as we speak. You know, it's currently 156 death row exonerees in the United yeah. States, the ones that are still alive, you know. Because last year we lost like five, I lost five friends that was exonerated, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're, you're, you're here because of an organization called Journey of Hope. Journey of Hope. I see you, you're wearing yeah, a t-shirt, right? From, from violence to healing, and we're here on a tour of Nebraska. Um, we're trying, we trying to retain the death penalty here in the state of Nebraska. Yeah, uh, because we, Nebraska repealed the death penalty last year, and, and you're part of a movement that's trying to retain that uh, yeah. situation now yeah. uh, let and me you, show them those sure go ahead oops that's all right you can put it back on and uh, it says on the back retain so that's the uh, and then love and compassion for all humanity so um, now one of so you've been touring here in Nebraska you and a bunch of other people yes sir. for the last couple of weeks and and now tomorrow what's going to happen 
Well, tomorrow I'll be flying back to Ohio to continue my fight against the death penalty because I speak all over the world. Okay. I, I, they didn't brought me to Rome to honor me for what I do here in the United States to uh, the fight against the death penalty, you know, because okay. uh, we need to we need to end the death penalty in the United States because we're making too many mistakes. And as you know, should no man be allowed to say who should live or die in America? We're making yeah. too many mistakes. And, well, you're, and, you're a living example of that, yes, aren't sir. you? Yes, yes sir. sir. Thank you very much, Derek. Thank let's you. Let's up. Let, let's, let's take a moment and pray for Derek. Uh, all of us together. Lord, uh, we... Thank you that Derek came here today. We didn't know until a few days ago that all this would, would be able to be available to us and that he would come. But Lord, we're so thankful to hear his story. It's a story I really didn't know about and uh, certainly didn't know that it happened as frequently as it does. But Lord, we ask that you will bless him as he continues to share about his life. And we thank you, Lord, for the way you have worked in his life that we don't see here a man who is, who is bitter and out for revenge, but a man whose heart is, is uh, eager to, to bring hope and justice to, to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Derek. And uh, God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, it is. We don't hear stories like that very often, do we? It's really an honor to uh, to get to hear that today, one person's story. Uh, earlier we said, God loves what? Yes. Let's try it again. God loves what? Yes. yes. And you know, to God, it's personal. God hates it when law enforcement officers get targeted and murdered. God hates it when a young person gets pulled over for DWB, driving while black. God hates it when a, a terrorist targets a gay club. God hates it when officers like Carrie Orozco are gunned down in the line of duty. You know, I have to say, I was caught off guard. I was, I was a little bit surprised by the energy behind the Black Lives Matter movement. But that's probably because I'm not black. Since, since I'm white, I have the luxury of being ignorant about what minorities go through. And, and what I'm starting to realize is that my ignorance is part of the problem. Um, if, if I remain ignorant, I help perpetuate injustice. So 
I don't know a lot about Black Lives Matters and all the things they stand for and do, and so I can't really comment on that, but I think Black Lives Matter is a way of getting my attention so that I don't stay ignorant. And so I'm learning. Um, I'm, uh, I, and, and what I'm, there's a lot that I'm learning that I don't like. Make, it makes me angry. I'm, I'm learning that if you kill a black person, you'll probably have to do some jail time. But if the person you kill is white, chances go way up that you'll be sentenced to death. I'm learning that if you're on trial for murder and you're black, you're much more likely than a white person to get the death penalty in certain kinds of cases, and according to one study, four times more likely to get the death penalty. I'm learning that if you're on trial for murder and you're black and the jury's all white, you're more likely to be convicted, receive the death penalty. I'm learning that the prosecutors who decide who to seek the death penalty for, 98% of them are white. That's our system. I mean, this is racial injustice, and I'm learning that God gets angry at injustice. Isaiah 58, the Lord tells the, the, the Israelites that he's tired of all their religious stuff. I mean, just, just quit. They worship God, but all the while, what are they doing? They take advantage of their employees. They fight with each other. They ignore the hungry and the homeless. And God's a little ticked off about it. We've had a lot of bad news lately, haven't we? Our hearts sink every time we hear another report of a terrorist shooting or bombing. Our hearts sink every time we, we find out that a police officer has somehow shot and killed an unarmed person. Our, our, our hearts sink when we find out that a police officer has been killed by a driver and a routine traffic stop. And we don't know what to do. We pray, and that's important. Skip down to verse 9. Will you still have your Bible open, hopefully? Verse 9, I love this verse. If you're looking for a way to pray at those moments, then uh, this would be a great place to start. It's a prayer for justice. So let's read verse 9 together, shall we? Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. We pray for justice. And yet, I find that I'm a little afraid to do that. Because what if God starts probing my mind and heart? You know, what's, what's he going to find? Uh, he, God's going to find the good he put there, but the Lord's also going to see my sins. He's going to see my willful ignorance. He's going to see my biases, some of which I don't see. And I really am not all that eager for him to reveal them to me. 
So I pray for justice, and yet there's a part of me, I have to admit, that resists it. I don't want God probing around in my mind and heart. Race is such a big part of what our country's going through again right now. Um, and I, I want to share with you what I'm learning. And so to do that, I want to I share with you a video that I saw recently. It's an interview uh, between two Christ followers. One is a guy named Stu, and he's interviewing uh, a, a gentleman who's a, a rapper and poet uh, who goes by the stage name Propaganda. It's, we're going to watch about six minutes of it, so here it is. Prop. What's up? Thanks for making the time. Appreciate oh, man. it. It's all love. Dude, I'm going to jump right in because uh, let's, go. let's, go, let's go to the deep end, all right? All right. So I'm, I'm struggling with even talking about racial reconciliation before talking about racial justice. Yes. When uh, you said this earlier, when you talk about hundreds of years, going back to the 1600s, hundreds mm. of years of injury, it's hard to, it's impossible, it's not even smart to talk about reconciliation when we haven't talked about justice, Yeah. right? And um, that's what I'm struggling with is, is I kind of grew up in the, the um, school of thought that's like, well, we just need to get together and mm -hmm. we need to reconcile and it's like, yeah. Why are white people calling black people to reconcile to something that's been done to them? Yeah. yeah. I'm struggling with that. Yeah, yeah. You smacked in the face a million times, and then the person says, okay, forgive me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, like, let's well, come back together. Yeah. What? I didn't do it. Well, anything. can you, like, I mean, can my jaw heal first? <laughs> like, maybe can we, can we address the fact that you slapped me in the jaw? Well, yeah. no, you know, it's in the past, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating topic. It's also, like, in a lot of ways... You know, you see posters, and this is going to seem like shade, but it's like what we're talking about. You see posters all over America for 9-11, like never forget, remember the Alamo, like all this never forget, but, do, but, but, but forget about slavery, and that's in the past. Forget about, you know, sharecropping and Jim Crow and redlining and, and the war on drugs. Forget about that. That's in the past. Let's, let's reconcile, but never forget 9-11. You know, so it's just like, man, like how come... How can we get to remember your injury but not mine? You know, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult conversation. Yeah. You know, um, but I think, you know, when when you know a person is willing to like accept their own wrong, you know what I'm saying, um, and and accept the fact that like you know it's like when you're dealing with like you're dealing with two kids like when you, you're telling like a child like this kid needs to apologize to that one if you're going i'm sorry but you did this it's like well you're not you're not sorry then like you know just own it with no strings attached it is what it is you were wrong you know and and take responsibility for your role in that you know what i'm saying and let the next person deal with theirs yeah and, and it and so many especially white people have a hard time owning that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just go through a little history. Yeah. It shows that white people have benefited from hundreds of years of mm -hmm. racism and racist yeah. systems in the U.S. that have systematically empowered whites yeah. and disempowered minorities, specifically um, African Americans. So from yeah. the 1830 Indian Removal Act that forcibly mm -hmm. re relocated Native Americans, yeah. To the benefit of whites, mm -hmm. to the 1862 Homestead Act yeah. that gave away millions of acres of land 
um, for free yeah. to the benefit of whites yeah. um, from Jim Crow laws that benefited whites, mm-hmm. redlining where minorities were excluded from home loans, yeah. um, which benefited whites yeah. again, to immigration laws that benefited whites and post-World War II subsidies for returning soldiers that pretty much was benef- only for whites. Was only yeah. for whites. <laughs> yeah. White people had benefited from generations and generations of accrued wealth, accrued access, accrued privilege, that as white people, like we neither acknowledge nor decry. Yeah. In in fact, a recent Pew Research, um, uh, the Pew Research Center recently came out with uh, some data that showed that, estimated that white households are worth roughly, this is right now, Mm -hmm. not like, 50 years ago, right now, white households are worth roughly 20 times as much as black households. And whereas 15% of whites have zero or negative wealth, more than a third of blacks do. So effectively, the black family in America is working without a safety net. Um, So when something happens, financial calamity, something, emergency or whatever, divorce, job loss, the fall is precipitous. So why do I have such a hard time convincing yeah. white people that yeah. this exists? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, I think that, I think in a, in a number of ways, there's like this, you know, the, the, the sociological concept of like racing the innocence in the yeah. sense that like the idea is so ghastly that like I'm going to do everything I can to like separate myself from that because that's unthinkable to think that I've participated and somehow benefited in this thing. And I think that oftentimes when you talk about like the term privilege, like, I think they, what, we're, we're, we're picturing two different things. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, you're picturing the Hamptons, you know what I'm saying? And well, like, I don't need privilege. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? They're privileged, you know, but like, uh, um, structural issues and structural history, I think is the part that I, I have found is, is difficult for, for, uh, sort of the American white, um, because, you know, it's it, this, the same families that have benefited from, from, from this, his, this history of government programs looks at the African-American and says, well, you need to work, and why aren't you pulling yourself up from your own bootstraps? And it's like, well, you didn't either. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, it, just, it just happened to your grandfather. You know what I'm saying? It's just your grandfather got these handouts, and this is now why you are where you are. You know, so since it was two generations ago, you know, that, that short-term memory uh, kind of kicks in, you know, so I, 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 think it, I think it has to do with that. I'd, I don't like hearing that. It's uncomfortable for me. But I think he's, I think he's right that I want to distance myself from all of that. It's easy for me to act like, you know, all that history, I mean, I know it happened, but does it really matter today? But what if all of that history contributes to where we are today? And like I said, I think my ignorance is part of the problem. That's why I need to listen. That's why I need to learn. And also because the God that we worship loves justice. And there will be a day of justice 
There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment and when each of us have to be accountable for God, to God for what we have done and what we have not done. And it'll be a day when we sinners cry out for the mercy of God through Jesus. And that day is coming and sometimes we look at the day of judgment as a terrible day and in a way it would be, but it would, it's also a day of hope because in his judgment, God is going to right the wrongs. In his judgment, God is going to clean up our mess. That's the day of judgment. But there's also judgment in this life. And when judgment happens, we very often, usually, we bring it on ourselves. Uh, you still have your Bible open to uh, Psalm 7? Let's look at verse 16. And here we see how sometimes, many times, God's judgment upon us is self-inflicted. Here it says, he's talking about his enemies here, the, the, the trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Do you, know, you know what Abraham Lincoln believed? Abraham Lincoln came to believe that the Civil War was God's punishment for the sin of slavery. What do you think? Maybe he was right. So, my question for you is, can we afford to stay ignorant? Can we afford to not listen? God, we call on God to bring justice, but at the same time, God calls us to bring justice. And woe to us if we do not. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, we confess before you that it's easy to, to push ourselves away from this topic and these thoughts and not really take a look at where we're at now, not really listen to one another. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to listen and to learn that um, we can be a part of the solution, part of the justice you want to bring. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.